So what is the first ever open world game you've ever played? Are we talking about video games? Oh, I mean, it could be, uh, it could be video games. It could be, yeah, I guess mainly video games. I, I guess there, <laughs> there was this one time where we were playing uh, Kick the Can and we like had a big group and we didn't set, um, we didn't set boundaries. Um, later on, we would set really good concrete boundaries um, that had a really good fun game area that involved like three houses, front yards and backyards. Um, and ways to climb over each individual fence. It was awesome. Um, but but before that, we just said, okay, let's let's play. <laughs> and one guy went and hid on one side. Which, so like everyone is in jail except this one guy. He goes around and, and hides over there. And so um, the, the guy who's guarding the can, he's like, oh, I know he's behind that bush. Like I just saw him go behind the bush. So he just stood there. was like calling his name for like 20 minutes. It turns out the kid ran all the way around the block and came back and kicked <laughs> the can behind him and everyone did a jailbreak. It was incredible. Oh my but that's why we had to set boundaries because, um, yeah, you kind of run outside the map and, you know, you can do some real. You might as well just go to the store at that point. <laughs> well, I have I've got two comments here. First of all, um, how old are you? Because I've never played Kick the Can in my life. I don't, I'm not familiar with these terms. Oh, we were young. We were average age was probably like nine. All right. Okay. Um, and then um, oldest was probably like fourteen. Okay. Youngest and was probably like six. Just like a neighborhood romp. Huh. Oh yeah, we had just a bunch of families had kids the same age. It was like like this golden age. You know, '90s suburb, um, and then uh, Southern and California. This, and this kid just like exploited the system. Expertly. He was one of the older kids, yeah. And he just, mm. you know, he took off like uh, what's his name, the, the kid, in the Sandlot, you know, um, and just like went all the way around. And um, yeah, I think we were all in jail, like excited, like like excitedly being like, "He's gonna get us, man! He's breaking the rules! He's getting out of the matrix! Like he's." <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he did it. And, like, I think the person got so upset by, like, the the tomfoolery of being, like, I know he went this way. I know he has to be hiding there. To hearing the can kicked behind him because they went all the way around the block. It was it was insane. Um, and I think we can go into, like, an interesting conversation about, like, why maps matter. Why, why uh, walls of open world games matter and why you just can't head north forever <laughs> because there's some interesting exploits some ramifications no, mm -hmm. yeah if there are no boundaries you can do some nutty things welcome to Vox Arcana I'm William I'm Jake I'm David and this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 58, Sandbox Games. All right, well, first, as okay, always, I, I, we must define our terms. Jake? Yeah, what, what, no, I, I want to know. Because I've heard a lot of different definitions of a sandbox game. Um, but there seems to be a little bit of controversy online about what a true sandbox is, and is there a spectrum of sandboxes, and... Well, should we define what we each think is a sandbox? Yeah, let's get some consensus here. All right, okay. uh, David first. All right, uh, so when I think of a sandbox game, 
I think of something that is heavily player driven mm-hmm. because the the idea of a sandbox is that you can you're you're given a blank canvas and you make something of it whatever you want to make of it. So an example would be like in Fallout, you can go wherever you want, you can interact with whoever you want to, but you don't have to do any quest in any particular order. You're just given quests and mm-hmm. you can choose to you know, help that settlement that needs that needs your assistance, oh, man, uh, or not, or you could just say screw you. I'm I'm not going to help you. So I think for me, that's really what a sandbox is. It's player driven, and it's in any sort of you know predetermined environment. Okay, actually, I really like that definition, Jake. Uh, you go, and then I'm going to take my favorite parts from both oh. of your thing, <laughs> as usual. Hey, uh, I, yep. I mean, I really. I don't know. I, I, I've I've seen a lot of different definitions. I really just think of it as open world. Like I think of it as there's no railroad tracks. There's no like story. Um, and there's there's still points of interest, maybe like a point crawl type of thing, but you can do the points in any order. Um, yeah, I just think of it as, as more open worlds there there isn't an order to things there's still a geography to things but there isn't necessarily an order to things because really a railroad Mm. is just like taking all the points of a point crawl and putting them in the order you want and Mm. yeah so it's just but maybe that's a is a point crawl a sandbox game who knows i am excited to find out okay well if i may think out loud do it i think a sandbox game as, as we've all agreed, it is player-driven, but I think it also emphasizes and utilizes time and geography much more strongly. Whether we're talking about vast distances uh, of, like, mountain ranges or we're talking even something... Or, or if we're talking something even as relatively small as, like, a single city. Um, my understanding of it is that there is no not necessarily a set story, but there is set events happening in the world so if you think of skyrim is a really good example of a fantasy sandbox because mm. i can go anywhere and there's oh this quest leads me to this city and then this city has like this many awesome quests and it, there's always stuff to do but you decide uh-huh. what to do yeah in a DD sense so, like you you're getting hung up on the point crawl versus like hex crawl versus like whatever like pick a point on the map and go thing and i think that um those are just various tools for executing a sandbox but they're not Mm. exclusive to a sandbox so you mentioned skyrim and like you know the elder scroll series i think are are good examples of uh open world games you know there's plenty examples of open world games um but like i heard you know i in preparation for this episode i dove into some of the debates about what uh, a sandbox really is and i'm not on any team but some of the the sandbox purists we're saying that <laughs> if there's if there's a main quest line, it's not a sandbox. Because a sandbox is literally Whoa. like kids playing in the sand. Like if there's like a parent hovering over them, be like, okay, now grab Megatron and throw him at that Power Ranger. Like then it's not a sandbox. It's it's adults ordering kids around. Um, hmm. And I, yeah, it was a really interesting argument of like if there is a main quest line because even in Skyrim it does it says main quest unlocked or side quest unlocked like it is like a mm-hmm. hey this this is the story story 
and part of okay. it is already written. I don't know. Ooh. Now, I would like to I would like to just say a counterpoint and that the only reason that Skyrim does have main quests and side quests and things of that nature is because it is difficult to build an interactive world in that manner technically without having any sort of main or side quest. It's hard to build a dynamic world and as far as video games go that is dynamic and will be reactive in terms of like quest lines and plot lines and all of that mm. and having political structures in which you can alter or shape or you know change the way that people interact with each other and having all those big epic moments that's not something that you can really run in a free engine system i mean you you can look at like uh no man's sky for example is mm -hmm. a very completely open world completely game. open world game but is there a main quest in that jake i haven't played that yeah there it's get to the center of the the universe oh so it's just a vague goal less, yes, yeah. less of a quest but i think, but I you're think also, a better example you, is you're Daisy. not going to be able to yeah mm -hmm. okay daisy okay that's something i have a lot of experience in because is that there's yeah know, i have you, a lot of it too you 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 do your own thing in that and there's a map the, there's the interactions zombies, there's within supplies yeah but that's it and it's, there, it's, it's about no the interactions stories. with with other players Yes, and amazing stories yeah. have come out of that game, but there is yeah, there, there are no writers on DayZ. And so that, yeah, I don't know. I think if there is a main quest line, like, I don't know. I, I definitely, again, I don't have a horse in this race, um, but for definition's sake, <laughs> I think Sandbox is kind of a, a spectrum um, because there is like the pure Sandbox where it's like, you know, you almost look around at the universe. You're like, I don't think anyone's writing the script for this. You know, like you look at it and you're like, I don't know if there, there are no rails to be had anywhere. And that's a type of, I mean, that's a pure sandbox, but then there's varying degrees of it of like, okay, give me hooks, give me, don't make me tell my own story, but let me experience the story I want. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this is very interesting. There's a uh, blogger that I sometimes follow. Um, he has a very interesting point of view on, um, on sandboxes, he runs his world as a 100% open sandbox, and but he does not deliver plot quests or uh, plot hooks. Mm -hmm. Every single thing is reactive to the player choice. So he just has apparently a perfect simulation, uh, and he runs his game on the planet Earth in a certain time period, just magic. So he's running in like the Middle Ages on Earth, and he can like zoom down onto like here's this city, and he knows all the demographics. Like it's really insane. Um, wow. And he, uh, yeah. And so he's like, the players sit down for the first time and they say, well, wh what do I do? He's, and they're like, I want to talk to the innkeeper for rumors. He's like, the innkeeper doesn't have rumors. Like, this is the real world. Like, what would you really do? And so he's like, well, I want to like rob oh, a, a merchant wagon or something. And so then like things start to spiral because the players push on an element of the world and then he just reacts to it, mm -hmm. which I, I personally would not run a game quite so heavy on the simulation. Um, but, but I see what he's doing where it's, just hyper real um but yeah like i said yeah I do that. that's very interesting that's like yeah th that is so like almost anti-story you know like imagine be like okay i guess there's no rumors here can we rob someone and he like <laughs> rolls a dice he's like no there's no one to rob right now it's like oh my gosh <laughs> right like yeah, i don't yeah. know if that's enjoyable so yeah so no. i think i think that's interesting but is that because true sandbox 
Probably. Yes. Yeah. So I think that there's there's the the the, the realism that creeps into a sandbox, mm-hmm. and as you dive more into realism, you get away from the dramatic. Uh, yes. Which so you you kind of have uh, to make a sacrifice. Do you want a more simulation oriented game, which is what I consider more of like the Daisy type game, mm-hmm. where you're gonna have to deal with sickness and all of that, and you kind of there's no there's no players around, so you're you're not you don't have anybody to interact with. Well, versus a more dramatic game, which is inherently a little more uh role play or rpg-esque because you're having to come up with npcs on the fly that have you know maybe backstories or plot hooks for you to go into which may involve quest lines Mm -hmm. later on which is gets away from the sandboxiness but it also plays up the dramatic so i think it all i guess starts to play on you know what do you want Mm -hmm. in your game yeah yeah, obviously there is like the, the communication of like what kind of game do you want. Um, that should always be front and center. But I'm trying to figure out what the two points of the continuum are, like the extremes. And I think it maybe is like simulation versus scripted railroad. And like yeah, s- simulation versus story. Fits in. But no, 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 because you can have story. I remember we had this debate. I think some guy had it with us on Twitter or like it was in some thread that we were tagged in or something. Um, but someone said, I can't remember who it was. He said, like, there is no story. Like, a dungeon master should never prepare story. Story is always what's told after the game is over. It Which, in a certain sense, I... plugged into I, the game. I, I understand why he would say that. Mm-hmm. And if he's playing more of the OSR game, then that's more true. Because in... I can speak yeah. from my experience with my Mega Dungeon game, where I have I don't have a story at all and the story that is told is the t- story that the, that comes from the player's actions and so and from that point of view he's right from a 5e game perspective i don't think that would work because like 5e exactly is very just... reliant yeah 5e is very reliant on having goals and like you know the bandit punches your boyfriend in the face and you're like um i gotta deal with that yeah but i i, I yeah. almost disagree because what you do as the game master directly impacts the stories that the players are going to tell mm-hmm. after but the game. But I think game. that makes you worse at simulating things accurately. You yes. know, because I've, so, I've pulled punches because, you know, people have, a, a, a their arc isn't over. And I like, does that make me a worse dungeon master? I don't know. I think it makes me a worse simulator. I think it, it makes the sandbox less yes. free, but it, it might make the story better. That's a compromise. So you have to real you have to you have to go. Do I want this to be as realistic as possible, or do you want it to be as dramatic as possible? And do you want it to be, I guess, more yeah influenced by drama or realism? And that's, I, I guess, that's the defining line of sandboxes that you really need to figure your, out for yourself when going into planning a sandbox game. Hmm. I, I think yeah. most games exist in the tension, and that's the excitement, is holding the um, verisimilitude with the character backstory, with the simulation, with the drama. And that's the art of being a good dungeon master, is knowing knowing when occasionally to pull punches and knowing when to make them suffer, you know, make them get the flu. It's, it's, a, mm. it's a very interesting tension between like the simulation and the and the scripted kind of drama of it it's very interesting yeah i don't want to get too down in the weeds on this but um, we're, we're, later we're on we, weeds. 
Later on, um, I will give you some very specific steps on how to build a sandbox uh, based on the uh, based on what I've learned. I guess. Oh yeah. So I guess I guess the other line for me that I'm seeing in a sandbox is how active or reactive is the world that you're in. So in terms of engaging the players, how much of it is them doing things versus things happening to them and them reacting so oh, i guess yes how much do I your players have to make something happen versus how much can the players just walk into a bar and a plot hook appears for them or how much how much do they mm-hmm. have to make that plot hook exist and kind of do it themselves hmm. i i think a lot hmm. of this um also comes down to pushback and like um the really the verisimilitude um, and i had a real fun time with that in dragon heist um, with a 5D module where they would do something like bold, like a big move. Like they go, okay, you know what? We're going to execute the hostage. And, you know, they would do it. And they'd be like, oh, that was fun. That was crazy, man. Like, can't believe you just, you know, went balls to the wall and did that. And then I'd be like, well, yeah, great session, guys. And then I'd be like, oh, wait, that's, uh-oh. Like you have to be like, okay, ramification, ramification, ramification. And like, I think that brings in more of the, the sandbox simulation of like, okay, there's going to be a lot more ramifications. Whereas if you're in like the standard um, 5e fantasy, uh, what's it, power fantasy nature of it, like there isn't going to be as much political pushback or ramifications for your actions. I think it's another part of it. You're talking about 5e doesn't normally have that kind of ramification? Uh, Not really. I mean, I think Dragon Heist introduced it a lot with the factions and how they react to stuff. Um, but no, I think... The simulations, like, uh, OSR stuff has more, like, all right, you angered this kingdom, like, they're invading now. As opposed to, like, in 5e. <laughs> well, assuming you could like, actually... It, I just feel like there isn't that much pushback in 5e politically and, like, the, the simulation side. Like, the realism, like, you're not going to get the flu. You're not going to have assassins after you most of the time, you know? Well, and that's just the, the tone of the game that, yeah. that we're kind of comparing and may and i mean this is frankly why i'm drawn to osr stuff so here's the example i'll give there's a, a podcast I, I listen to that i highly recommend it's all about getting you as your like middle-aged self to, to get D back to the table it's called roleplay rescue by che webster you should listen to it but um he talked about in one episode uh he runs an after school club of he has like an open table a bx game and the kids were just kind of messing around and they like got in a bar fight and killed a bunch of guards and he's like, okay. And so they got arrested and put on trial and convicted and executed. And that was their whole session. And he was like, I feel terrible. And the kids came back the next week and they're like, that was the most fun we've ever had. <laughs> wow. Yes. And I'm yes. like, what the heck? But like they wanted to push the boundaries of the world and it responded realistically. Like all he did, he didn't plan like, you know, a session. Oh, and this one, they're going to be tried and have a daring prison escape. He's like, no, like this is what would happen to you. If you're like a, a murderer in a city, you're not going to get away yeah. with it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you get to play in the sandbox. You get to have all this player agency. But, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And, you ha- yeah, you have to take the ramifications and the verisimilitude of, of your actions. Yeah, I really – I love that they respond in that way because I think so many people are afraid that, okay, crap, like if I send guards after them or if I like – send assassins after them which would actually happen they're going to be pissed you know they're going to hate the game because you know they're, they're they feel like mm-hmm. they're being punished too much but like i love that they're like that was awesome <laughs> we were executed <laughs> but like, yeah, we were I, executed I think, I think 
I, dungeon masters are overly cautious with enforcing um, punishments for bad decisions. If that makes sense. Yeah. Especially in fighting. And yes. And so uh, with that, I think um, let's get into some tips for actually creating a, a sandbox game. And then we'll give you some additional tips on how to make it better. Um, so here is my advice. And uh, Jake and David, I want you to jump in whenever mm-hmm. you feel led. All right, so um, first is some resources. There's a lot of places you can go online to run a sandbox. I've spent uh, basically most of 2018 and almost all of 2019, so yeah, at least a year, f- discovering this following fact that is going to really save you a lot of time, and that is that nobody knows what they're doing with the sandbox. <laughs> um, everybody just kind of makes it up, and you can look at all the blogs, and you can follow all the advice, and it might work for you, and it might not. Uh, the best way to do it is to do it yourself. If you want something done right, after all, you should do it yourself. So here's um, here's what I would do. First, I have a product to recommend. It's called the Red Tide. Uh, it is, I think it's like 10 bucks or under 10 bucks on Drive-Thru RPG, and it's all about how to run a sandbox. It's kind of based around this um, Asian or Oriental themed kind of uh, setting. You, if you don't like that, just ignore it. And you can just go to the back of the book where they have the rules and procedures for actually running a, a uh, sandbox. Okay, so here's what you do. You're going to get a piece of hex paper that is 30 hexes wide by 20 hexes tall. Your scale is 24 miles per hex. This will give you a map about the size of the Mediterranean, which might seem small, but believe me, it's more than enough room to run a full campaign for years. It's a huge area. Multiple kingdoms, duchies, whatever. Um, Within that map, on on the 24-mile scale hex map, you're going to put down 45 static points of interest. One-third of these should represent settlements, towns, and castles. Um, While the other two-thirds, or about 30 of them, should be dungeons, which includes monster layers and special areas. Of those 30 dungeons, three of them are going to be large, meaning that they'll take between six and ten sessions to play. Ten of the dungeons will be designed for one or two sessions of play, and then there's 17 small layer dungeons designed for like half a session or so. Um, And then uh, all you're going to do for prep is at each point of interest on the regional map, should get about one paragraph of description. You don't want to fully detail and map out every single little thing or you're going to make yourself crazy and you're going to hate it and you're going to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, but just one paragraph is enough to be like, hey, this is like the statue of blessing and it gives you a plus one to something, whatever. Like, keep it really brief. <sighs> and that is how you start your hex scroll. That's it. Or your sandbox game. Very the best advice I can give. Hmm. Yeah. Are your hexes okay, so- that big? Uh, so that's for the, the campaign scale map. And then I've zoomed down into a much smaller six-mile hex scale into like one area oh, of it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. This just, I don't know, this seems daunting to me. Well, that's why I just pulled a pre-made campaign out of a book that is at this scale. And everything is already filled in for me. So I just, if I want to create additional stuff, I easily can. Like, oh, this hex thing would be good. Like this product I Kickstarter would fit really well here. And so I just plop it down. But everything else is fully made, statted, um, detailed. Huh. Very interesting. It's very easy. So at the 24-mile hex level, it's not really usable in terms of like tr- planning a trip. So you're going to um, divide it up, I think, into six sectors um, with the same 30 by 20. 
and the hexes now just represent six mile hexes and so you just zoom in and you have your your map wow. and uh and that's it it sounds it sounds easy uh because it, oh, it doesn't sound that easy but it is and you need a lot of detail um the thing about this is that you think oh i'll be losing detail because i'm planning so many different locations but um the truth is is that if you think of like skyrim in a typical night the players are not going to travel 600 miles west or whatever probably not uh, and if they are you can delay them with like random encounters and cool settlement discoveries and npc interactions and stuff that, along the way that you can prepare the next session um or prepare <sighs> where they're going before they get there one thing i've always found really useful um when designing uh space and geography is make it way smaller than you think mm-hmm. like and and don't you don't have to say miles you don't have to say I mean, hell, you could say parsecs. Um, make it feel <laughs> realistic, but when you really look at it, it's not going to be. You don't want to pull behind the curtain. Um, I think a perfect example is uh, the like Fallout Three when you, they're in uh, Washington D.C., the the uh, nuclear wasteland of uh, Washington D.C. And like I've been to the mall of of the Capitol. And I've, I've been through and seen where everything is and seeing it in the game was like, oh yeah, I've been here. But when you really look at it and zoom out, like it's, it's like, I think one sixteenth the scale or even smaller, probably like one two hundredth the scale. Um, and I think that's something that's really important. Um, because I'm just like thinking of a 24 mile hex, like traveling 24 miles is just, it's, it's way more than you think. Um, and so, yeah, I think like scaling everything down, but giving it the illusion of how huge it is, um, like thinking of like the biggest open world games, um, Skyrim, uh, Breath of the Wild, um, when you really look at it, like it's, it's way less than like a few square miles of actual yeah. space. Yeah. Because um, like in Skyrim, you look and, up and, and you see so a mountain and you're like, whoa. But then if you were to walk to that mountain, you get there in like 10 minutes in the game and it would be literally hours or maybe a day. Yeah, I, I dare anyone I, I to like try to walk to the closest mountain they see and see how long it takes oh you. Oh my gosh. There's going to be some listener in Colorado <laughs> who's challenge. like, okay, idiot. <laughs> no, I think there is an art in that though of um, the deception of size. Um, like like the the illusion of, of massive... Um, of huge size is something that's really important in D and D and in designing things, because I think the literal numbers make it confusing. Like I think almost making it 24 units makes it more because then the, the theater of the mind, the geography of the mind of the player um, is as long as you go like traveling without using an exhaustion, you can go this many units, this many hexes, you know, um, makes it better than like actually doing the math. I don't know when you get down to the nitty gritty of geography and like topography and travel times, I think that's where I just fall asleep so quickly. Um, and yeah. so making it units, maybe hexes um, and giving it the illusion of vastness is really a way to make good, good sandboxes to play in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I would zoom down to the six mile hex level. Because most yeah. people can walk about 20 miles on a day. And so even if you say like, oh, it's this many days away to get here, like that's that's easy. 
Yes. That's that's kind of what I've done just naturally. It's like, yeah, it's like this many days <laughs> on horseback, this many, this many days. days walking. Yeah. Uh, um, another very important part of any sandbox is encounter tables. Mm. Um if you listen to our previous episode, you know that uh, David and I have uh, shifted somewhat away from 5e. My main reason is mostly the length of combat takes a long time and random encounters can really bog down the game or the story you're telling. Um, but in a game that's fully player-directed, they need to be aware that there are dangers uh, when you travel to certain areas. Um, so honestly, a good random table for an area, like let's say you have a swamp random table, a road civilized random table where it's more like social encounters or what have you, um, or whatever forest type of terrain. Uh, you can really get some cool stuff to happen based on just kind of uh, circumstance. It seems like, you know, abstract and annoying where you're like, oh, I'm like, you know, every mountain and whatever. But honestly, the main thing we care about in role-playing games is the, the drama, the interaction with people. And so yeah. when you have like a, a government, uh, like local city organization, whatever, um, that has an agenda and goals. Like, so here's the example I'll give is that in the game I'm running, there's this big mountain mega fortress, mega dungeon, whatever the tent pole dungeon. And then, uh, there's a tiny, just a, like a military outpost near the dungeon that doesn't have a lot of stuff you can buy. And then, um, about a day's journey away, there's a much bigger, um, it's not a capital city, but it's pretty darn close. And the person, the person in charge of that capital city doesn't want people going into this dungeon anymore because they know there's good stuff in there. And so like already the players know that there's these rumblings of like basically once the snow thaws, they're going to uh, make it illegal for non-sanctioned groups to go into the dungeon. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And so they understand that motivation. And so basically they're trying to figure out how to, first of all, get in there as much as they can during the winter because the game runs in real time. So as long as it's winter here, it's winter in the game. Um, and then figure out how to get sanctioned. Otherwise, they're going to be like killing their way past outposts, which is oh, super dangerous dude. in this game. That's sweet. And so, right. And so now that I have like, here's the circumstance. Here's what's happening in the world. Like, how do you react to it? Like, this is what gets me excited for sandboxes. Like, I'm not, I don't get excited for 24 mile hexes or, or six miles, but understanding like, okay, like here's the government, here's what they want and here's why it's a problem for you. That's where the drama happens. Yes. I think um, the excitement for me, especially when, as I start to create a new game, is um, like looking at the flavor. Like, like I don't know. Um, I, I have this map building software. Um, I think I've talked about it before, Incarnate. Um, it's just like a, a super cheap um, thing. And I've, I've fiddled around with it, but I haven't really dove in because it's there's so much there. Um, but yeah, that's the point is like when you get the flavor, when you get to the flavor level, it's like, okay, I built my mountain ranges. I built this. Ah, okay. Now it's like, okay, this castle is here. Oh crap. I put it in the wrong place. So it's floating in the ocean. It's like, oh, that castle's now floating in the ocean. You know, like, getting the, the, <laughs> to the flavor level of like, um, that's when it gets really exciting. So hearing that, oh yeah. When the snow thaws, they're going to have to get sanctioned. I'm just like, I'm already seeing myself in that in that world so oh going yeah, to the city council the, the building point. like trying to petition <laughs> right like now we have like this entire like political session essentially where they've got to like Forging make their case papers. as to why they're the best for the job and then it turns yeah. out they get turned down so they have to reapply next that... next year <coughs> oh they just got to pay a lot of I, money I to get the license yeah 
You gotta pay the right people. <laughs> no, no. I think the exciting thing. I mean, the term sandbox is just like a thing that draws children in because they can play in it and and use their imagination with whatever toys they have. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's what's super exciting about um, <clears throat> as a dungeon master having a sandbox is like knowing the regions and knowing the situations and just being giddy at the idea of letting your players play in that specific region is just super exciting about sandboxes is like, not that you like, you know, the, the railroad of like, Oh, my players are going to love what I have prepared and scripted out. It's like, Oh, my players are going to love playing in this part of the world, mm-hmm. which and is super like- exciting. So I've mentioned that my game doesn't require any prep because I just heavily utilize random tables. And so even talking about this makes me think there's more I can do with tables. So let's say you have got your big region, your Mediterranean size, like here's whatever, half a dozen city-states that are kind of doing their thing. I zoom down and then I have, uh, almost, you know, like in civilization, you have your little boundary for around your, your cities. Oh yeah, like I just borders. roll on a table of each region. Like, here's what's happening with trade. Here's what's happening with like the borderlands provinces, where like you know terrible, terrifying beastmen yeah. are always encroaching. The just to see, place. like, and then roll on this table to see what happens. And then like you just say, okay, here's the state of the world today, like for this session. And then yeah. you know the players can kind of go and learn about this, and and it's gonna affect them and make their life annoying. Yeah, I love it. I'm getting more excited for world building for myself. Yeah, the main thing to remember is that a sandbox doesn't mean that there's no goals, and it doesn't mean that there's um, that your players just travel around a lot. Like I think there's a, a, a mismatch or a confusion among the concept of hex crawl and sandbox. The hex crawl is supposed to be like you're exploring the wilderness. So if you think of the conquistadors, who were the uh, sadly the original. Um, D and D murder oh, no. hobos. No, really, like they were just like You're right, though. yeah, they're just yeah. coming in and murdering and stealing for gold, uh, not even caring Literally. that like their guys, their own guys are dying not of disease. About just like, I don't civilians. Care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they don't care about civilians, um, <clears throat> but they were they were hex crawling in the sense of like they don't know what's in the next like block of of land on the map. It's like they're they're exploring that fog. So they're of gonna war. find out. Mm-hmm. There could Where be gold. Is... There could be the fountain of youth. <laughs> Always around the next corner, that fountain of youth. Uh, whereas a sandbox is more like, like here is the map that of the region. You know, you kind of know where the big stuff is, but you want to go find gold in them. Though our hills, mm-hmm. let's go get it. Let's go get it, buddy. So let's hop into just, just some general tips in uh, like how to run a sandbox game or a more sandbox type game. Um, and the first thing I think we mentioned earlier is giving players agency. Um, this is not a dungeon master plot driven scripted game. There are no rails. So with that openness come like you have to bestow so much responsibility on the players. Um, the players are what are forming the plot, making the decisions. Um, you can still dangle the hooks in a way to, um, get to, to some of the stuff you want to, to show to them, but, it really is up to them, um, and a lot of it falls into the hands of the players. And for that reason, I think you have to have really good players. Like, you have to have assertive, yeah. self-starting players. You cannot do this. I think sandbox games are very daunting to new players um, because they're like, okay, where's the dragon? Where's the dungeon? Isn't this called Dungeons & Dragons? What dice <laughs> do I roll? Like, it, it doesn't 
<laughs> they are not going to thrive in a sandbox type game. You might want to put them on the cart, put them back on the rails, um, and just show them the ropes for a while. Um, but veteran players that know the system well, um, that are that have an idea about what their characters are, how to roleplay well, that's where they can thrive in the sandbox, I think. Because it's you trust them, and you know they're going to thrive um, in the world with that responsibility. We talked a little bit about this in the open table episode, the importance of default goal, default action. And especially in a sandbox where there's this feeling of like, I don't know what to do. Um, the, if the default goal, like for a manga dungeon is I go to the dungeon and I'm going to start exploring and finding treasure, um, is always your fallback. Um, and that also gives you places to put plot hooks, uh, as I mentioned in that episode, about like maybe there's a treasure map that you find that leads you off into the, the woods of uh, Kalamazoo or something. Kalamazoo, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Michigan is the most magical land, Jake. Oh, man. I mean, I haven't been, so. How would you know? How would I know? Um, and then the other thing it's important to know is that if the players are in full control of their destiny... They need to be responsible for for Their the actions. dangers that they uh, get themselves into. Yeah. And if you bail them yes. out of the dangers that they get themselves into, then they're going to feel micromanaged or parented or whatever you want to say, babysat. Yeah. Like, you know yeah, that they're... There's no... The simulation isn't real. You're seeing through the matrix. Yeah. Like, somebody slaps your hand away from the outlet every time you reach for it. David? <laughs> I mean, I just want to. I just want to see how it feels. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if if they want to run off a cliff to see what's going to happen, let them run. If they want to kill everybody in a, in an inn, they're going to get arrested and tried and executed for their crimes. Yeah, I think I think that's important. Is to, I, I feel like I've played in a fair amount of open world games, and I think that the biggest thing is like having a GM that reacts to your players and kind of plays off them and what they're doing really makes the game a lot more interesting and a lot more fun because a lot of times in open world games, if the GM and the players aren't on the same t- like plane, I guess yeah. for a D and D term is uh, it's there. The, the players are really going to struggle to find something to do. And the GMs are going to be stressed, frustrated because the players aren't really doing anything in the game and they're just kind of bumbling around. So you really have to focus on what your players are doing and what see what they're taking interest in in your world and amplify that. Hmm. Because that's what your players yeah. care about. That's what they're trying to do. If they're trying to, you know, build an army, you know, find, you know, opponents for their army to fight or, you know, help have interesting people to recruit or stuff surrounding that but you gotta really play off your players and you really gotta focus on what your players are doing and that will make your game a hundred times better it's true because your players will tell you what they want to do through their actions and if they're constantly saying like i want to go and do i don't even know jake come up with a crazy thing players would want to do well well i I think a good example of this is like a a wanted board or like the you know the town wanted board yeah. where it's like okay this person's daughter was kidnapped, uh, this uh, bandit chief is wanted in the mountains, um, this person needs uh, an escort for their caravan, and you'll giving players options. Um, you might think you can guess what they want, but players will oftentimes surprise you, um, and that's where you can really see oh maybe these 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 
players want a different kind of game. Or maybe, like, I'm glad I didn't railroad them into going into the mountains to kill this bandit chief when, like, clearly they want to escort this caravan. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so like, yeah, I think you'll be surprised when you give players options and several hooks um, in that maybe your scripted version of the events would not have gone better than what, you know, actually letting the players choose what they want to pursue. And I think also instead of focusing more on plot hooks, just having interesting things to interact with in the world is another way that you can kind of make the world feel more interesting and engaging. Because if you have a lot of, you know, like a, like a, the, the town has a wishing well that supposedly makes your wishes come true. Like obviously the players are going to want to interact with that and you can see what they wish for and see how you can, you know, play with what they're doing and, play off that and bring a more interesting game mm-hmm. well, yeah. for that um there's a really good point here um, and actually red tide addresses this as well about the upfront preparation required to make a sandbox run uh, if you read the alexandrian on his blog the alexandrian um, he believes, and maybe this is controversial, he believes that every single hex in a region should be keyed, meaning there's something in every hex. But if you're writing a, something for like hundreds of hexes, you're coming up with hundreds of different things, um, it, it gets exhausting and it can burn you out really quickly. In the Red Tide, the author says, basically, you should only be preparing something if it's fun for you. And as soon as it's not fun, you stop doing it. And I think that that's uh, really good advice in general. Because okay. if you feel like you're just compulsively like creating, then it's no longer yeah. worth your time. I, th- I think that's 100% true for anything in D&D. If you yeah. feel like you're being a slave to your players or a slave to some hypothetical game in your head, what are you doing? Like you're doing this for the solo fun of world building and um, storytelling and like, like your own solo fun as a dungeon master as well. Um I think what you said, though, leads to possible scenarios that we've mentioned before of the quantum ogre problem where you can kind of be like, oh, this, you know, you're disguising the railroad as a point crawl where they can go in any direction. But like you still have things prepared. Okay, this this session, they're going to fight the ogre. This session, they're going to fight the uh all of the vultures this session they're going to fight the goblin tribe and you just no matter what direction they go they encounter them in the order you want because that's what you have prepared mm-hmm. um and i think obviously like if you're getting drowned out by details you're like i'm not having fun doing this yeah don't um but don't have a railroad disguised as an open world game it's okay to have a railroad game. It's okay to communicate your players like, hey, you're going to be kind of consenting to this story that like we're all kind of on. Um, that's fine. Like, like it's not evil or bad. Um, but if you commit to like a sandbox open world game, don't don't have it as a railroad in disguise. Because the players yeah. will pick up on it and they're like, oh, like we... Because there is kind of this thrill and like, oh, the Dungeon Master thought we were going to do this, but we actually did this. I can't wait to see how he gets out of this one. And then you can tell that the Dungeon Master just shoehorned what was going to happen anyway Uh. into like, yeah, I I think that is cheapening it. And so if you commit to this open world hex crawl uh, uh, sandbox thing, commit to it and really be willing to 
to to make the player's agency matter. And like I said, if you do the work up front and you have like your big map with all the, the hexes keyed or what, 45 points of interest, what I said before, um, once it's prepped, you don't have to do anything week to week. You don't have to prep because you don't know where the players are going to go. You're just like, oh, maybe they'll go to like the ogre village on the coast. Eh, maybe not. But Is it even really there? It is. It's not a quantum ogre village, David. Mm. <laughs> quantum ogre village. Oh, it man. moves around. <laughs> it's no, there like, and I, it's I, not. I Schrodinger's think, um, village. Schrodinger's quantum ogres always <laughs> prepared. No, um, I think there is this certain thrill, like you talked about. There is a lot of upfront costs to building the sandbox, building the walls of the sandbox, the, the points of interest. But once that's built... You can kind of sit back and be like, oh, I can't wait for my players to experience this. Mm-hmm. And and there is this kind of week to week you aren't stressing, oh, crap, it's Tuesday already. I got to prep for D&D. There is none of that. Um, and I experienced that in my own world with just playing in it so much that I was like, when they said, hey, we're going to go south instead of north, I was like, all right. Because I, I, I knew the world so well that I was prepared for that, but... I mean, if I didn't have a sandbox, if I didn't have the, the world built, then I would have panicked. Um, and so, yeah, there is that a little more upfront work mm-hmm. in sandbox, but it pays off in spades when you get to not worry. You get to gleefully see what decisions they make. You aren't like crossing your fingers being like, please take this option. Please take this option because that that's what I prepared you get to be like, oh, I can't wait to see what they do. Exactly. Um, I, I think I've quoted this before uh, from George R. R. Martin, where he says, um, Tolkien, his world building was an iceberg, where you see just the tip of it and so much of it yeah. is concealed. And oh, he says, other yeah. fantasy writers um, are presenting um, a couple of blocks of ice on a raft to give you the illusion of oh, depth. There's so much depth, yeah. Yeah, and... Yeah. I think that's a, the cause of so much frustration for these GMs who have like good world building. Like I can tell you what happened 10,000 years ago with like the red elves of whatever. Um, but they don't actually have a plot point or a city set up for if you go north. And so sandboxes force you to make your prep very tangible and practical. And it's like, well, I know that this is the northern city winter hold or something. Um, yeah, the upfront investment is so worth it. Uh, I, so here's my... Um, ringing endorsement so my current game is a open world sandbox as i've mentioned and i have my map all figured out it's great and i got a product that recently was finished from his kickstarter by one jacob hurst and company he's made the uh the hot springs island hex crawl which everyone should own period super cool um but they have their new product out and it's a very uh tight focused dungeon crawl with like a little small town nearby and I'm like, I want this in my game. And so I figured out where in the world it would make sense. And I just put it down and now it's in my world. And, the, and I can build a bunch of plot hooks that kind of point players there and all these rumors that they can hear. Um, and it's and it's done. And it took me as much time as it took to uh, look at a map and, and that met my criteria. And the rest is completely plug and play. So um, that's just yeah. the ease at which I can now continue building in the world. Yeah. Uh, another tip, I don't know if we touched on this yet, uh, but another tip is to, um, a lot of times you have this kind of, if you're running a railroad type game, you go, okay, they're obviously going to use this to do this, and then they're going to get the MacGuffin, and they're going to plug it in here, which will unlock this. Um, 
and it's it's this very straightforward linear storytelling um where the players know point a they know point b they know point c and they know like the keys to unlock that um but there are oftentimes in an open world thing where you'll have kind of an idea of what key unlocks what or what um opens up different portions or regions um but a lot of times that will go by the wayside and they may drop the secret uh crystal of galesh um into uh the volcano on accident and suddenly how are they going to get into the northern wastes now um and this is why it's very important for you to reward creativity in mm-hmm. unorthodox solutions to problems. Um, this is where you can sit back and let the players struggle a bit. And this often is very hard, especially for the dungeon masters that come from like a theater background or like a you know screenwriter background. Like they're sitting here, they're thinking the audience is getting boring. But in reality... Um, unless they're streaming their game online, the players are having a lot of fun chewing on the problem and actually figuring out a creative solution to that problem. Um, And I think a lot of open world play involves the the dungeon master sitting back and letting the players struggle, not handing them a MacGuffin, not giving them a Deus Ex Machina where they just can freely get to the next portion. Like, let them struggle, let them find unorthodox ways of of getting to the next part um and that can be really fun and it it is very hard there's this weird tension of like the players being like "Ah, i don't get it i don't know what are we supposed to do where you feel like you as a dungeon master have to lovingly reach down like a paternal figure and be like come here son i'll show you the way i'll show you the plot but like really a lot of fun can be had if you let the players struggle a bit and let them force them to be creative. There's extremes of this, you know, the extreme creativity unorthodoxy could be the peasant railgun, which we've all heard the meme of that. Um, But the, that is, well, so that's creativity, but it's a exploitation of it's the phrasing of game rules. What is the, yes, the peasant railgun. Um, okay. Not that I, not that I don't know what it is, but for our audience, we talked about it on the podcast. Okay. Here's the, here it is. Hire a ton of peasants. Let's just say it's 2,280. Line them up in a single line. This will form a chain of peasants, two miles long. It had to be four miles back in my day. Buy a ladder, just a standard 10 foot ladder. Disassemble the ladder into a bunch of rungs and a pair of mighty 10 foot, uh, wooden poles hand a pole to the peasant at the back of the line first round of combat peasant at the front of the line readies an action to throw the pole at the enemy every peasant behind him readies an action to hand the pole to the peasant in front of him next round peasants fire off their readied actions passing the pole two miles down the line and hurling it in six seconds or less poles accelerate to the speed of uh, 1188 miles per hour or mach 1.5 in dry air um peasant railgun can be reloaded and fired in less than 12 seconds uh, because <laughs> an action fires a projectile in six seconds and so yes. it's Anyway, they they worked out the math within the system of like three three third edition three point five. That means you're firing a piece of wood at Mach one point five, which is a railgun. Yes. And so it's it's clever in the sense of game mechanics uh, being exploited, but it's um, it's not at all within lore or uh, world building. I would argue <laughs> that you you wouldn't be able to coordinate two thousand people in a two mile length. Oh also, I mean, if you're I a GM, see, just I want to see. 
I would pay so much money to just have four min-maxers, just rules lawyers, trying oh to do God. the peasant railgun as David tries to stop it. <laughs> I would... <laughs> Here's the deal. I would never play in a game with those kinds of people. Exactly. I, no, there's like, guns not to, to your head. Guns to your head. Got multiple guns. Why? Are they are they peasant rail guns to my head? They better be. Because yes, uh, that's two miles long. I won't allow it if it's not. Okay. But if you can just oh, veto, man. then just say no, it doesn't work. There was a, a rule in, in some GM advice book, and they said um, – if there's an exploit that is, uh, if I make a ruling that leads to a later exploit, then immediately the exploit and the ruling are changed just oh, to get yeah. around stuff like this. And I was like, what a great like piece of, of rules that he had in his open table manifesto is what he called it. Have to, well, yeah, maybe in an open table with curmudgeons, but yeah, mm-hmm. it feels like curmudgeons. you have to make these. This cretins. Like my players <laughs> have done stuff where I'm like, all right, come on, man. I'm not allowing that. And they're like, yeah. okay. Like never, yeah, so. like, screw you, man! It works. <laughs> I thought I could get away with it. Oh. If it wasn't for you, meddling um, kids. Well, so I have a question, Jay. So why? Yes. What happened to sandboxes and hex crawls? Why don't we have these anymore in published products? I think closest thing we got was so, was Tomb of Annihilation. So I think um, first off, yeah, five E. As far as five E goes, uh, they don't have a lot of sandboxes. They have certain regions um but they it's not very sandboxy the only one like you said tomb of annihilation i've ran it twice it's very good it's a very good 5e version of a sandbox but not like Mm -hmm. a a real pure if you're looking for that different kind of freedom fix true agency for your players you might should be a point crawler okay yes so Um, i but oh i think i have a reason and i think that's because 5th edition plays very much like a Marvel movie where you have a consistent dramatization of, you know, things that are mm. happening throughout the game. Whereas a real open sandbox for all of you people who have played DayZ, about 95% of the time it is you running. <laughs> it is literally, that is the gameplay. And there is that 5% of the time where it's like high octane, like... Like you're you're interacting with players, I barely or survived. Oh doing stuff. Like, yeah, barely survive, and it's really intense. But most of the time is running, like it. it so it's that's that's kind of how D and D games get down to. Mm. I feel like if you really break it down, if you run a really true sandbox, a really hardcore one, it's just not going to be as much fun. Okay, so <laughs> I I have many thoughts or consistently on fun. I like so this. I think okay I think. Look, the players in the late 70s, 80s, they were, how do I put this? They were not the popular kids. Mm-hmm. And they devoted so much time to Dungeons and Dragons and had so many great moments. Then when they think back on those times, they can tell amazing stories and yeah. just uh, weave a yarn, a tale well told of the most beautiful amazing adventures and think back so fondly on them but those stories are the cream of the crop of hours and hours and hours and hours of slogging through clumsy early D crap that really took that really took it like like took a long time to get through but they had all the time in the world 
They're not going to parties. Yeah. They're not, you know, going to prom. And, like, I don't want to be mean about that. But, like, they had all the time in the world. And so they had all the time in the world to get to these amazing moments. And in today's society, with the internet, with Critical Role, with um, Marvel movies, like you said, people want to get to the story quickly. They mm-hmm. don't have time to be like, okay, yeah, I guess we'll rent a boat and travel for 65 days to get somewhere, and then we'll take 24 days in the dungeon. They're like, no, we want a plot. We want a story. And we can argue the merits of where D&D is going, but D&D, obviously, since its inception, is getting more fast-paced, getting mm-hmm. more high-octane, and getting more plot-driven. And we can argue if that's a good or a bad thing, but that's just that's that's where it's heading. And it's very interesting. Dang, yeah. I, I agree. I think that's a really great thesis, and it's most likely true, um, because we know that just everything is getting faster. I also think that... Yeah. As it gets more mainstream, the people who are about the simulation and the number crunch aren't there because most people aren't into that sort of thing. Most people no, they, do want the stories. No, no, but those people find their own communities. I think we're yes. in like a uh-huh. new renaissance where yes. there's a bunch of people. Will talks about like introducing new people to the game like every session. And mm-hmm. like because of that they're always kind of mainlining this mainstream 5e kind of plot driven thing. But then there's people that branch off like you, you both and really David who's like, no, this I'm looking for something more, something that's not this, this kind of this 5e cliche stuff. Um, And I think that we're seeing, it's like the, you know, the second phase, the second wave of the, the D and D like boom where mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of room for games like Pathfinder 2 and games where they are yeah. more crunchy, they are more innovative, they are more risky, they are more out of the box. And I'm really excited for those. Yeah, actually. All I can say is I agree. Oh, boy. Um, the end. So um, <laughs> so, so going back to like 5e in general, which is kind of this big powerhouse right now, most of their modules are pretty big, full-fledged campaigns, like very mm-hmm. lengthy, as someone who's ran many of them. Um, so it's very hard to like grab a portion of Storm King's Thunder and kind of put it into... Actually, now that I'm saying that, it isn't really that hard. And I think this is something Dungeon Masters... Okay, my point, I'm completely... Like, my brain's like, no, Jake, you gotta, you gotta read. <laughs> pull up, pull up. So, so I think this is something that Dungeon Masters need to do a lot, is go read old modules and just mine them. I think that's a lot of the solo fun for me, is is, is looking at some of the... Um, especially Advanced Dungeon & Dragons uh, modules. I think Will sent me, like, a ton of PDFs a long time ago. And I just have been plowing through them and just being like, oh my gosh, this encounter and this trap combination is so silly and awesome and incredible. And be like, whoop, like that is <laughs> going to be now a portion of the Dungeon of the Bad Mage. Um, and I think those th- that's a really fun thing to do is to um, take these things and insert them into your sandbox. Um, you really get the benefit of especially when you're making your own thing and it isn't pre-made, even with pre-made, you, you know, you can just be like, all right, I'm replacing this. Um, as a dungeon master, get in the, the, the habit of switching things out for better things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to ruin the game. They're not going to be like, wait a second. Why are there goblins here now when there used to be gnolls? You know, like it's going to be fine. 
Um, and so get used to yoinking things from from other editions and mining that awesome those awesome resources to plug in to your sandbox. Um, never stop doing that. Never stop stealing. Jake Barton. No, seriously. Put that on my grave. Yeah, for DMs, like there's no reason not to just take the good stuff. Have you heard of the one-page dungeon contest? That is a endless I'm... resource oh of my dungeons. Oh my gosh. I subscribe. Where is that at? <laughs> Uh, google it it's free you can download the winning entries every year they're running it for like a decade at least if not more um there's some really really great stuff in there dude that sounds awesome yeah that i mean that's prime stuff your players aren't reading that dungeon masters they they probably aren't mining old stuff like that and so they'll never know welcome to the question vault every week we answer one of your questions. You can submit yours to Podcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on our social media, which are all some variation of at Podcast. Take us away, Jake. Okay, so this question is um, from Layla on Twitter. Um, she says, I'm running Dungeons & Dragons for some friends for the first time in a few months, so no rush on getting to this. Well... I guess humility will get you somewhere. Um, (laughs) So basically, I'll sum it up. She says um, she's running for a bunch of theater kids. Um, So and they're all like late 20s, so it should be a good time. Um, But part of it takes place uh, in a bar. And so she's asking for us to do a type of random table talk um, to create a bartender for her to play as the dungeon master. Oh, get your dice out, Jake. So we are making this for Layla. So we are making a bartender um, for, oh, God, dude. Anytime I hear theater kids D&D, I go, oh, 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 oh subscribe. Because they're <laughs> the best role players, my friends. All right. All right. Some... What, which ones? Uh, give me uh, at least a D. Oh, you need all of them. Give me a D20 first. All right. I'm here. All right. Roll your d20 for the appearance of this NPC. That is a six. The six gives us a pronounced scar. I feel like if we want it to be really interesting, let's do two appearances. That is a 16. Uh, A nervous eye twitch. Um, Let's put the scar right on his eyeball. Oh, it makes sense. It adds up. Scar. So big scar on the eye. And this is already classic D&D. You want to lean into the cliches. Big scar across the eye, but the eye twitches from said wound. Exactly. So I think <laughs> the the real thing is, how did he get this scar? Because he's going to mm. be he or she Ooh. or they. <laughs> I hold think on, we on. should let's, let's continue rolling, and then we okay. can decide. Is, is okay. there a race table? Um, maybe the first, the next in line is the NPC ability, which is sort of okay. like their primary stat. Okay, that's a ten. Oh, it's sorry. Give me a D6. Excuse me. Oh, <laughs> that's off the chart. That's a four. Four is intelligence. They're studious, learned, and inquisitive. Quick. Interesting. Oh, I was picturing like smart. this burly brawler. But yeah, I was thinking it's... like constitution, but like it's a smart bartender. So smart. how does like a, a wizard or somebody get a scratch across the eyeball? Oh, why is a wizard tending a bar? <gasps> oh, so I'm already off hold the on, Hold on, hold on. Why are we on wizard? You guys are crazy. What's next? Someone smart. Okay, this is their low ability. It's what they're bad at. So okay. give me another D6. That is a one. 
uh, that's their strength. They're it's actually a wizard. feeble and scrawny. Yeah, it has to be a wizard. Or at least somebody who's uh, learned. Yeah, very okay. smart. Okay. All right, next is their talent. This okay. is one sentence that describes something special about them as a d20. Okay. That's a 19. A skilled dancer. Okay, now I'm thinking female. Just because, <laughs> okay. like, I mean, we, okay. can, we can have male dancers, Smart. but I think it's just, it's more, um, I don't know, it's more in the cliche, I think. So she was a dancing wizard. Okay. Well, dancing smart person. Okay. Dancing. She smart. just majored in dance smart. in college. Come on. Let's do another one of these. Another D20. Yeah. Jake. Your talents. That's a net 20. Oh. Uh, they know thieves can't. Oh, maybe they're a thief. Okay. okay. So that live dancer's body has been used for um, for crimes. Gesturing. Yeah. Maybe pickpocketing. Gesturing. Oh, okay. Be. Okay. But if, if she's smart enough then uh, she's not going to stoop to pickpocketing. She's probably running the organization. Okay. So this Out of this a, bar. This could be a thief skill I have content. some ideas. Okay, hit me. Oh, is that it? Is there anything else? Oh, no, there's more. Uh, okay, okay so let, the NPC, let's keep plowing through this. The mannerism is a D20. That's a 12. A 12 is prone to predictions of doom. Oh, no. I think that actually makes Cynical? sense with connections to the underworld. Yeah, so they know what's going to go down. It's like insider okay. trading. Okay. Oh, but for bad criminal and things. They, give me one more because I, I think these are good to have two. That is a six. Uh, speaks loudly. I don't know if I like that. Uh, I the kinda, one next, okay. I'm hmm. leaning a different way than you guys. Okay. What are you thinking, Jake? So I'm thinking this is like a minor illusion wizard. And so oh. they have the illusion of like a huge hulking half half orc, um, and they <laughs> always look like your prototypical scar on the eye, just like, "All right, welcome to the tavern." But it's hmm. actually like the, this woman who's skillfully manipulating everyone, hmm. and like that's oh. the reveal. Like maybe the bartender shakes their hand, and like that's where Layla, as the dungeon master, could say, "Oh, the hand feels way smaller than like it looks." Oh, it's so that's interesting. When, that's that's interesting. they can be like, oh, wait, why? What the, is there something, roll a perception check or, oh, like. She's just like this weird puppet master, like wearing an illusion suit. Like wearing like a big, like, uh, what is it? She's like just a, this guy's self. Bouncer suit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and this guy's self. why wouldn't you? Like, seriously, if you were like an illusion wizard and worked it like as a, uh, a barmaid, wouldn't you want to occasionally look like a big, beefy half-orc and just be like. I want it to you, lad. Well, if she's <laughs> if she's smart enough to know these spells, what is she doing tending bar? This has got to be like a sting operation. Yeah. Like maybe the real bartender like was killed and kidnapped, and this is like she's not a doppelganger. Oh, she's, she's on oh, the lamb. She's, she's running. Ah, uh, she's so this like is impersonating like, someone. Yeah. yeah. They're like, wait a second, you're not Sognog. <laughs> so like she forgets what the basic info about? about like regulars at the bar. Oh. Oh. I, whoever Layla is, I'm imagining her being like, "Hi, hey, what's going on?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> dancing around. Oh man. Okay. Is there anything else? Uh, NPC interaction traits. D12. Okay. That is an eight. Uh, hot tempered. Maybe she's oh, playing it yeah. up for the uh, the, for the character. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, playing. Uh, and then we have the ideals. Uh, they have one for each alignment, along with other. Um, so how about you just roll a d10 and uh, re-roll tens, so we get nine. Okay. Actually, it's only, there's only there's only six. Why is it only six? Okay, give me a d6 actually. Three d6s or no? Just roll it once and then to see our 
Uh, D6, so six. Okay, so that is other, and now roll it again. This is their ideal. That is five. All right, so the redemption is their ideal. Ooh. So maybe they are... Um, Maybe they committed a big crime, which is why they're... Maybe they accidentally killed the bartender, and now they're just, like, pretending to be them all the time. Huh. (laughs) To make up for it. So, like, the Um, bartender had a family? No, no, okay, so instead of killing the bartender, (laughs) what if the bartender is just, like, very sick and has a family, and, like, for whatever reason, her connection, she wants to take care of this person's family, and the only way she can do it right now is by keeping his job. Mm. Because the bartender maybe doesn't own the bar, he's just, like, a regular employee, and the owner's not very kind. Yep. Uh, he wouldn't pay him if he wasn't there. Okay. Which makes her very altruistic and kind. Okay. I like um, it. Okay. Okay, we have NPC Bonds, D10. That's a one. Uh, dedicated to fulfilling a personal life goal. Hmm. Hmm. That's tough. That is. Um, I like the one that's protective of close family members. That's just two. Okay. Or like protective yeah. of colleagues or compatriots. So any of those um, yeah. explain why she's stepped into this strange situation. Oh, man. So, it, okay, we got we got, think about the context of this. We've got a bunch of theater kids. I think the main thing is to, like, play up this, like, as, like, oh, well, my name's this, blah, 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 blah. And, like, you know, you're, I'm this big hulking half-walk. But, like, you know, make them do an abundance of insight checks, perception checks, and investigation uh-huh. checks to where they figure it out. And like that's such a fun introduction to D&D is figuring out that, like, wait, what? Like, this, you know, uh, s- small female wizard is, like, has this, like, projection of magic that's making her look like this. That's where you go, oh, D&D is full of you know you Twists kind of go turns. from yeah like there's there's a this world is magical that is this is mm-hmm. our world i love hmm. that and then like maybe yeah so the bartender ends up being good but like the the first like the first plot hook is figuring out this bartender's like pretending to be a hulking half orc with illusion spells so what if and this could really happen jake the players completely ignore the first uh hook of like oh your her hand feels very small Comp- or the hand feels smaller than you'd expect. Well, then, I think Jake Jake had other things where it's like the regulars like don't get recognized. Okay. So that's like yeah. when you're at the bar, like one of the regulars like is trying to like make a reference to something and the bartender doesn't get it. So I you, think you could do you things just like do an that. abundance of checks, you know, an insight check, a uh, investigation check, a perception check, and if none of them work, then you just commit to the bit and give them the quest anyway, like as Grognard. Um, <laughs> and maybe that'll be a reveal later. Yeah, because it doesn't that, have to be right happens. away. It could be later yeah, on. That makes that it's it even revealed. better, like especially if these um, these theater kids keep playing, because like that is such a funny thing when you figure out later. Like, wait, what? They were a doppelganger the whole time. Or wait, they were just a kinku in a goblin mask. Kinku in a goblin mask. All I can say yeah. is, give me a treasure. Give me a treasure. <laughs> like, regardless, I think the reveal, whenever it happens. Uh, is going to be great. Wow. Well, that was our question vault. Uh, thank you, Layla, for the great question over Twitter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, send send more our way at Vox Arcana Pod. On Twitter, yes. Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana episode 58. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time.